Welcome to the Radiant Visalia podcast. Join us at one of our two services, 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. Download the Church Center app or visit our website, radiantvisalia.com, to stay connected with us. All right, enjoy. Um, some of you, some of you recognize Doug. He comes. Is it annually? Has it been about annually? Um, Maybe twice a year. I don't know. Maybe something. Like uh, Doug's been here at Radiant before and has uh, spoken to us before. He actually uh, held a, a marriage workshop here just probably about a year ago, and. Um, I'll tell a, a story about Doug, just because I know some of you are new here, but um, I first met Doug two months before we started this church, six years ago, yeah, so six years ago I met Doug, reluctantly, I was a part of a, I was a, part of a workshop, uh, or a negotiation lab, that's what it was called, we were in a negotiation lab. And I was just a couple months away from planning this church, and I knew that he was a pastor, so I avoided him. Um, and the, the reason was this. How many know that sometimes your vision is very easy to criticize? Because there's a gap between where you're at and where you want to be. So when you tell people where you want to be, it can be easily criticized because there's a lot in between where you're at and where you want to be. And so I stopped sharing my vision with pastors because they would ask me questions um, that, that were really discouraging. Like they would ask me about my five-year plan, and I didn't have a five-year plan. And they would ask me about our ecclesiology, and I didn't know what we were going to do. I didn't even know what that word meant. But I would have to pretend, and I'd be like, yeah, that's important, I'll think about that. As soon as I figure out what that is, I'll, be, I'll get into that, you know. So, so I, just, I just didn't want to have a conversation with Doug. I didn't want to talk to him about what was going on. I, I uh, felt scared to share with him the vision that God had put on our hearts in, in a fear that he would um, remind me of all the things that I didn't know or didn't have in place. And so, the, finally, the last day, we end up sitting at the table together uh, at, at lunch, and I ask, what kind of church do you pastor? And he says, I pastor a non-denominational charismatic church that I started with my wife when we were 25 years old. And it was exactly where <laughs> Tiffany and I were at. And so now, uh, now I run to Doug, rather than running away from Doug or trying to avoid Doug um, I come to Doug with my questions, and I've, I've loved the last six years of getting to bounce things off of him, call, th- call him when I'm facing different things, and get his input. And um, so I'm really thankful for his, um, he, he's had a, whether you know him or not, he's had an impact on this um, church, and has really been a part of laying the foundation here at Radiant. So we love Doug, and, and we're, we're um, excited to have him share with us this morning. Pray for me first. Absolutely. Mm. 
Father, my, um, my heart is overwhelmed with thanks and gratitude. I, uh, I thank you for the way that you've provided for me, and I thank you for Doug and his place in, in my life. And I ask that you would bless him as he speaks here, and that you would pour into him as he pours out, and that you would lead him as he leads us this morning. Give us ears to hear this morning what you're saying to us, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jeff. Good morning, everyone. Uh, first of all, um, I want to bring greetings from your fellow followers of the living Christ in Santa Rosa, where I live, 60 miles north of San Francisco. And... Um, and I bring uh, their blessing of peace towards you. I'm a part of a community of faith up there. And uh, when I come down here and I experience the life, which I do every time that I'm here, and, the, and just the presence of God, I'm so reminded that even though it was 276 miles, and who's counting? It's like there's this connection between Christ's body uh, no matter how far the distance is. And, and you know, I was so encouraged by that this morning, just that alone. Um, uh, in response to Travis's kind words, uh, I have a question. And you don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to, but how many of us in the room are 50 years or older? Thank you. Okay. Because you guys are going to really understand something that I'm about ready to say. When Travis and Tiff came along in our life six years ago, they see it from their perspective of um, what we were contributing uh, to them in whatever encouragement or whatever we, we gave to them in our relationship. Six years ago, Valerie and I needed a stream of life. How many of you all know what I'm talking about? that uh, Radiant has served to us. So, thank you. Thank you. Even if you don't know me, thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, Starbucks here has an interesting Sunday morning culture. <laughs> I don't want you to hear it as a criticism. It was just a different experience. Uh, I showed up with my um, black shirt, pokey hair, and my iPad at 7 o'clock this morning, and the old boys were really checking me out. Like, and you know when people don't hide that they're staring? They're just like, well, <laughs> slow head turn in. And then when I left, I got the slow head turn out. And I got in the car, and I went, fascinating. I felt so much more comfortable when it came around 9 o'clock, and... And other people who looked more like me started showing up. I was just like going, Whew. okay. I was getting nervous. Uh, <laughs> it was just a funny experience. Uh, each morning, uh, where I live in Santa Rosa, I get up and I go to Starbucks every morning. I'll tell you why. It's, it's very intentional. There's actually very little in my life that I don't do that's pretty intentional. 
when I was pastoring, I spent 80% of my life with believers, or probably more like 95% of my life with believers, and maybe 5% of my life with either people who didn't know God or I didn't know if they knew God, you know, that group, the whole, like the whole rest of humanity. And I did that for 30 years. Pastored in various capacities for 30 years. When we moved, Valerie and I sat down and we had a come to Jesus meeting, the two of us, and we said, what do we want as part of our life as we go into this phase in our mid-50s? What is it that we want to do? We both said the same thing. We said we want to spend 80% minimally of our time with people who either don't have yet to discover who Jesus is or we don't know if they do know. And that's not a commentary on, on the church crowd, right? It's just like we had this hunger in our heart to connect with people. So one of my ways for me um, is to get my butt out of bed, go to various Starbucks in the city, and I've been doing that now for almost three years. Um, I'm not joking. I could write, and I'm not, I'm not kidding, I could write a book on my experiences alone over the last three years. Uh, I, would, I would say it would not be an overstatement to say it has changed my life. The conversations I, the depth of conversations that have occurred in that place in such ordinary settings have been so extraordinary that I'm, I'm absolutely convinced to my core that people are hungry for God. I, I, I'm... I am completely revived in my awareness that people are hungry for God. And uh, they so uh, don't want him in religious... Um, um, they, they want, I think they're hungry for God. They, they don't necessarily want the religious packaging. And it's been such a joy to stumble around through my own religiosity to actually get through to have a normal conversation with someone that could create an extraordinary moment. And it is it is continues to be quite a learning process, and I mean that's really something. A guy who holds three you know degrees, two of them graduate degrees, a doctorate, and taught in universities, and I'm like I feel like a neophyte, trying to just have a normal conversation. I guess uh, it's crazy. <laughs> Anybody relate to that at all? Okay, I'm okay. I just want to make sure I have, I'm speaking to mere mortals here. <clears throat> When I go into Starbucks in the morning, um, you know, the one thing is the way I wear my hair, you can never tell if I got out of bed or I combed it. <laughs> and uh, so I go into Starbucks in the morning and my hair is all pokey and I'm wiping the sleep out of my eyes and I haven't probably spoken yet because Valerie's asleep, right, in the mornings. She likes her sleep and I go there and I haven't realized it's going to be difficult to say grande americana. And the people laugh at me, and they go, you know, it'd be nice if you woke up before you got here. And I go, that's a good idea. That would be great. And, you know, it's kind of funny in that kind of segment of life when you're kind of walking around half asleep. But what I've also found out is that it's possible to walk around life half asleep, even as a believer. How many of you think that's probably true? Now, the ramifications of me not being able to utter out a proper coffee, coffee order in the morning to Starbucks are minimal. The ramifications of walking around half asleep in life, particularly as a believer, 
I would like to assert are not minimal, that they have wide-reaching implications both for you as well as for other people. I want to tell you this, confessions of a pastor and one who, quite honestly, probably pastored a church, very similar at many levels to Radiant. When I come here, it's like a blast from the past for me when I, when I see the demographic and I feel the vibrancy and I hear the passion in the worship and the spontaneity to hear what God is saying. And I'm just like going, oh, geez, this is so cool. Now, I'm a part of a covenant church, which I absolutely love right now, but we don't do all that stuff, right? It's alive, but how many of you know alive can look different? Okay, so it doesn't have to just look one way. I get it. But I have to confess, when I came in here this morning, I went, "Mm, I missed that. (laughs) (laughs) How many of you know it's possible to come in here and have kind of an alive worship experience, but yet walk out half asleep? Like, you can just transition really quick. Well, Valerie and I, about five months ago, we made... Another transition. Would everybody just say those two words? Another transition. It's not that painful to say. (laughs) We made another transition. And what led us to that transition was this realization. We, at one time, had dreamed a dream. And somewhere along the line, we got off track. And we started living our life half asleep. And Valerie made this quote... It's an original quote. She says, when your dream becomes a nightmare, wake up and dream again. And five months ago, we said, okay, you know what? We're back on track. 54 years old. I've been a pastor. I'm not supposed to get off track. Well, I did. Uh, We both got off track. Five months ago, we decided to get back on track. And what was the leading edge was this concept. It comes out of a scripture in Romans where it says, you know what? The night is far spent. It's time to awaken. It's time to wake up. That was written to believers. And I think there's multiple levels of this waking up. How many of you think that's probably true? I mean, like, certainly there's the big wake up to Jesus. I mean, hello. Yeah, I get that. But within that experience of knowing Jesus, there are... There are multiple expressions and times and encounters and opportunities to wake up. So five months ago, we decided, okay, we're going to focus our activities on being with people, creating uh, experiences, workshops, whether, and, and our speaking, whatever we do. It's going to be very focused on one thing, and that is somehow being a tool in God's hand to assist him in calling people and supporting people into waking up fully. The great church father, St. Irenaeus, famous quote, you probably have heard it. He said, the glory of God is man fully alive. Would you say it with me? The glory of God is man fully alive. I would like to make a parenthetical statement to St. Irenaeus' quote and say, it is the glory of God for man to be fully awake. Now, in the midst of all this, um, I started crafting, um, started taking what I call it recycling. Do you you say crap ever in the church here? 
Okay. Okay. I have to be careful. I speak in different settings, right? That could just totally derail the whole service in some setting. But anyway, um, I decided to take the crap that I was experiencing in life and recycle it. Such a concept. And part of that was uh, looking at things that I felt like, wow, I have really fallen asleep at some level to. Or half, how many of you have ever seen Ted Turner's eyes? They're always like this. I go, how do you see out of those slits? You know, he looks half asleep. But yet, when I saw that the other day, I thought, wow, that's how I was walking around with respect to compassion. That's how I've been walking around with respect to family. My family. That's how I've been walking around with respect to joy. And so I began working on some of these uh, thoughts and ideas. And uh, amidst, right in the midst of all this, uh, Travis calls me and he says, Doug, I've got an idea. Travis, how many of you know he has lots of ideas? I, it's one of the things I love about him because when I pastored, you know, I would walk in and they'd go, oh, no, he's got the idea look on his face, right? I got ideas. Well, he calls me and says, I have an idea. He says, I'm taking the church through the book of Philippians, and I'd like to have some sort of a workshop that's different than the, than the cognitive download that we typically do on Sunday mornings, something that could take some of the ideas and the principles and the concepts and really do some exploring and do some work around some of these key themes in Philippians, I said, well, what's really on your heart? And he says, well, the idea of joy and about being a people. I go, this is a God thing because I'm working on something like that right now. So I sent him 14 key concepts out of Philippians, and I said, hey, listen, being the creative guy that he is, you know, you get to create your own workshop. What are the ones you want? He says, I want this one, this one, and this one. I go, great. So Val and I have been working on this one-day workshop. It's kind of, I think it's going to be like three hours on a Friday and four hours on a Saturday morning, all designed to assist Radiant in doing work around some key concepts within Philippians, but it's not just about getting more data. How many of you know there's a difference between getting more data and the data really interrupting and creating something new within you? Okay. So I'm very excited about this. I'm also very excited about the fact that when he made arrangements for us to create this, he shared with me a vision that other churches would want to do it. I was able to sit with him. Now, this has all happened just within a matter of weeks. I was able to sit with him last night and say, listen, I have some good news to report to you. One of your colleagues in the faith, who he's never really met, is a church planter in, on the island of Manhattan in New York City, part of a church, just imagine Radiant in five different spots of Manhattan. There's three more going to happen in 2012, making a difference in New York City. Pretty cool. Okay, here's the deal. He calls me and he says, Doug, Elena and I, just imagine Tiff and Trav, but with different accents, right? Um, Right? In Chelsea District, pastoring this amazing church, making a difference and uh, networked with five other churches, not looking in their belly button all the time, right? Spiritually speaking, just really looking outward, loving God, looking outward. And he says, we need you to come do something, but we don't know what it is. What do you got on the plate right now? What are you doing? I said, well, I'm doing this really cool thing for this church radio. You know the one I've been telling about? Yeah, I know, I know, I know. I got to meet those folks. And he says, tell me about it. I told him about it. He says, would you please come do that same workshop in New York City uh, after the first of the year? I said, twist my arm. Yes. So the very thing we're creating for Radiant, that Radiant has has really been very much a part of birthing, we're taking there um, to um, 
do this workshop that we're calling Awake to Joy. Everybody say it with me. Awake, awake to Joy. That's what I want to talk to you about now. I want to talk to you about being awake to joy. Now, the reason I want to talk to you about this is because if you were actually going to ask me, Doug, what is one of the most significant things that have happened in your life in the last five months, I would say this topic. Not because I'm speaking on it this morning. I'm telling you, it's this topic, being awake to joy. During the last five months, I've experienced uh, betrayal of my closest friends. I've experienced uh, devastating pain where I was medicated like 24-7 for months on end it, without the uh, assurity that I was going to pass out of it, you know, like apart from dying, <laughs> you know, like it was going to change. How many of you know that that is very destabilizing? Okay. And I'm talking about incapacitating pain. It was in my neck. Uh, I've experienced serious economic ups and downs. Uh, the fears that are very current out of one out of four Americans right now. Uh, destabilized financially. De destabilized my 401k. They need to change the numbers on it now or something. You know, whatever little bit was in there is, you know. Anyway, virtually every front that you can imagine, we've experienced, and I'll speak for Valerie, we've experienced loneliness that we didn't even know we could experience. Um, Kind of like now, I put a smiley face in my notes at this point, and it said, smiley face, just a normal kind of human experience. How many of you have experienced some form of what I've just said in the last five months? See, it's normal. What I also experienced is during this last five months is I go, is it possible to experience joy amidst so many obstacles? And I see some heads shaking, yes, and I agree with you. I have to confess that five months ago, I probably wasn't shaking my head quite as quickly as you were. Uh, because the obstacles were formidable to me. The obstacle really did seem, it didn't seem like a speed bump in the parking lot kind of obstacle. This really seemed like a <laughs> obstacle. <laughs> So I'm not speaking to the speed bump crowd right now. I'm speaking to people. I want you to get in touch with times in your life, either in the past or currently or both, where you actually felt that there was an obstacle to joy. And if you can't connect with that, and I'm going to say if you think very hard, you probably will, but if you can't connect with it, imagine being in that place. Because I could almost certainly guarantee you something will happen in life. I remember when my younger son uh, decided to go on his interesting journey of life, which we hoped would be only weeks, and then we hoped it would be only months, and then we hoped it would only be one year, and then we hoped it would only be five years, and then we hoped it would only be ten years. Anybody connecting with this story? How many of you know that when you have children... And even though you know they have free will, darn it, God, why did you think of that concept? Uh, why, how many of you know that that could be quite an obstacle to joy? You can relate to it that way. Or the death of a loved one, or the death of a spouse, or a spouse who doesn't die but you would love to kill because of the choices they've made. Right? Okay. Just want to make sure I'm talking to real people here. So... I began looking, I would say, 
not just cognitively, but I began looking in a new way of looking at the whole subject of joy because I kept telling Barry, I said, you know what? Somehow I've got to find a way to experience joy amidst pain, amidst suffering, amidst all this stuff. So I'm going to ask you a question. Well, let me make a statement. First of all, then I'll ask a question. Here's a statement. How a person thinks about something generally decides or determines their experience of something. How a, how a person thinks about something generally determines a person's experience of something. Point in case. When I did my doctoral work, I did it in the area of trust. So I can tell you, not because I have letters behind my name, but I know a lot about that topic. I will tell you this. People generally tend to think about trust in one of two respects. They either think of it, most, most of the culture, most people, and most people in here will tell you that they basically believe that trust is earned. Trust is earned from people. You watch a person, they conduct themselves a certain way, they have certain competencies, they have a certain degree of, of a continuity to their life, and your ability to trust them you know, raises or not. The other spectrum of people will tell you that trust is given. How many of you believe in both? Yes. Because even when trust is earned, you still have to make a choice to give it. But what I noticed is, is that people who believed that tr- only believed that trust was earned had a certain experience of trust, which was tended to be much uh, smaller. Like the amount of people they trusted in their life was a narrower spectrum of people. The people who had a view of trust or had an understanding of trust that it was given, their experience of trust was, uh, yeah, they had made some mistakes and trusted some people that they hadn't, but they still felt that the, the payoff of extending trust to people was better than withholding trust from people. How many of you think that's probably true, just as far as an experience of life? But what, go, what, what I found out when I was doing this is how a person thought about trust determined their experience of it. Another example about trust. If you th- how many of you think trust is fragile? Raise your hand. Okay. Well, so did I. I remember talking to my younger son and saying, now listen, because, you know, I kind of knew he was going down the dark path, right? So when I saw him kind of going down the dark path, I said, now remember, you know, you have your dad's trust, and you know trust is very fragile, and once you break the trust, it's going to be very hard to get it back. You know, I'm trying to do the Jewish mother thing, right? hoping that will motivate him to keep choosing the light. Well, guess what? Didn't work. <clears throat> and so what I got to find out is, is that when the trust was broken, I thought to myself, well, if trust is fragile and it's really hard to get back, then it's going to be really hard for me to connect with my son. It's going to be really, really hard. And that was my experience of life. Then I thought, well, what if trust isn't fragile? What if trust is resilient? What if trust can even experience betrayal and you can rebuild a friendship or a family connection. So how a person thinks about something will determine generally their experience of that very same thing. So now I want to come to the subject of joy. I want to ask you, remember I told you I was going to ask you a question. How do you think about joy? Now before you answer yourself quickly, check it off. I want you to really think, how do you think about joy? And what do you think about joy? 
What is your, what is your thinking about that subject? Now, once again, I've done quite a bit of homework on this. I will tell you that generally in our culture, in the church and outside of the church, not much difference, people generally connect joy with uh, two things. One is a state of happiness and well-being. How many think that's true? General state of happiness and well-being. And they would also be associated generally, most commonly, with an emotion or an emotion slash mood, a feeling. And so a person's, if that's, if that's how a person generally regards, oh, and it's also, in a metaphor, it's also regarded as something to get to. It's like, it's kind of like the pot at the end of the proverbial rainbow. And it's, it's revealed in language. People say, I need some joy, or I need to find some joy, or, or how about this one? I heard in a prayer, and if you prayed this prayer this morning, I'm not criticizing your prayer. It's just what I do for a living. I listen. And it was like, oh, God, like, I need joy. Like, God is the, like, it's, I kind of call it the uh, biblical version of fairy dust. I need some joy in my life, Lord. Like he's, like he's kind of like the dispenser of it in, in some way that is probably not exactly how it's designed. How you think about it is going to be uh, important for your experience of it. One more is most people think about what's the opposite of joy? Grief, sadness, sorrow. Now, most people think about joy. Now, here, if you have not been paying attention, turn it on right now. Because most people, most Christians, think about joy and sadness being mutually exclusive. How many of you think that's true? Now, you're not going to raise your hand because you don't want to look stupid. But most people do think they're mutually exclusive. They're polar opposites. And if that's your thinking, then guess what? If you're suffering and you're sad or you're grieving, joy eludes you. You see, that's in the way. I have to stop being sad or I have to stop suffering or I have to stop grieving in order to get to joy. It's how you think about something is very, very significant. Believe me, I have been undoing and redoing some of my stinking thinking around the subject of joy these last five months. That's why I'm excited to talk about it this morning with you. So how you think about something determines your experience of it. So now, with that in view, I want to read a portion of scripture. I didn't ask you, what translation do you usually use here? Huh? The new Arabic version or whatever, okay. Whatever. Well, I'm reading out of the New King James. You don't use that one? And you, and you call yourself radiant? Okay. All right. And by the way, I think your haircut looks very nice. Good job, Tiff. I'm reading from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Now... Paul writes, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident of my chains, are much 
more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely opposing to add affliction to my chains. But the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. This is... You, we're going to, on the first night of the workshop, this is what we're going to do work around. We're going to do work around this passage. So I'm just going to give you the heads up. Because I'm trying to give you understanding about this workshop. You know, what would it be like if you took the time and the money to come be a part? This is what we're going to do work around. How to reframe obstacles into opportunities for joy. How many of you think that would be worth 20 or 30 or whatever, how many dollars you're paying for it? Like really literally... Doing the work around reframing obstacles into opportunities for joy, not only for yourself, but that you could create an experience of joy for other people in your life. That's, I'm passionate about that. So we're going to work on that. Now, what is interesting about this text is not what Paul says, it's in how Paul reports it. Here's the deal. Did these people who he was writing to, did they already know he was in prison? Everybody say yes. Yes. They already knew. They had already sent money to him. They knew he was in prison. They knew he was in chains. They knew all of the data. So please understand. Hopefully it's not my phone. Um, Please understand that he is not giving them new data. They knew this. What he is doing is not reporting what the what. He is re- it is the how Paul is relating to the what that is key to this text. How he's reporting it. And that's what I want to look at in a moment. But before we do that, I want to crawl behind uh, the scenes of Paul's thinking about joy. Because remember I said, how you think about something determines your experience of it. Now Paul, in... A section of Romans, he writes this. He says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is, this is a major uh, disclosure of Paul of how he thinks about joy. Two things that are noteworthy about this. First of all is the actual word. The actual word is the word kara, See how transliterated would be C-H-A-R-A. It's related to another Greek word, charis, right? How many of you have heard that word? Charis. It's the Greek word for grace. So this idea of joy is, in terms of its word usage, is deeply connected in terms of its etymology to the word of grace. In other words, Paul is giving you a very important factor here. He's letting you know that joy has an origin that is different than circumstances. Happiness, its origin rests within what is happening. So if the circumstances are favorable, you're. And if circumstances suck, you're not. Because the origin of your happiness lies in what is happening around you. Paul's understanding about joy is not 
uh, is not a parallel to happiness. He's letting you know, oh, listen, no. Joy has an origin that is different than circumst- what circumstance affords you. Joy has its origins in nothing short of God alone. I like what Henry Nouwen, how many of you have ever heard the name Henry Nouwen? One of my favorite Christian authors. I personally think one of the greatest Christian authors of the 20th century. He writes, Joy, in his definition of it, joy is the experience of knowing that you are unconditionally loved and that nothing, whether sickness, failure, emotional distress, oppression, war, or even death can take that love away from you. He says, going on, Joy is not the same as happiness. We can be unhappy about a great many things, but joy can still be there because it comes from the knowledge of God's unchanging love for us. You see, God's unconditional love, the fact that he looks at you and says, you're the beloved daughter, you're the beloved son, Doug. You are loved. Nothing can change that. That is, lies at the heart of God's gracious way towards us. Is that amazing? Like, you can't earn it, and you can't lose it. Go do the worst thing you can possibly do. God's going to love you all the same. Does it mean he's going to love what you did, but he's going to love you? His love for you is unchanging. It's uncaused, and it's unchanging. And that love is the love that Paul At the end of chapter 8 of Romans says, neither height nor depth or any created thing nor things past or present or whether it's... Right? Will separate you from what? The love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. You see, grace doesn't vacillate. And a part of that grace, part of that charis, that wonderful expression of God's way of being with us in life is this experience of joy, which Paul says the kingdom of God... Uh, is Now, I said there were two things about this text. One was the word that he used. But the second thing is, is his reference to the kingdom. Paul, Paul's understanding of, of life always fit in the larger container, the larger context of the kingdom of God. Everybody just say those last three words. The kingdom of God. You see, it was the larger reality at all times. Now, in this lies one of Paul's greatest strategies for experiencing joy in the suckiest of circumstances. Because whatever he was experiencing was always held within the large context of God's kingdom. God's kingdom, in other words, was larger than whatever was happening to him. It didn't mean that suffering was unimportant. It didn't mean that that, was, uh, that, that that didn't matter. All Paul was saying, no, suffering matters. Being in prison matters. Notice he also says, hey, I know I'm going to probably get released as you pray, uh, you know, for, pray for me and you supply what's lacking through your prayers and that God would set me free. Did Paul want to be out of prison? Everybody say yes. yes. Yeah. He, was, he wasn't like trying to be some martyr just sitting in prison. He wanted to be out and be about God's business, but that wasn't what was happening. But he held the, the dissonance of what he wanted and what was within the larger context that God's kingdom is larger than all this. Listen again to this quote from Henry Nouwen. He said, I remember the most painful times of my life in which I became aware of a spiritual reality much larger than myself, a reality that allowed me to live the pain I was experiencing with vibrant hope. 
How can you experience vibrant hope when you're in pain? Well, you're not going to find it out of the pain in and of itself, are you? Like you try to dig through that pain. I'm going to tell you, been there, done that recently. I dug through my pain. All I did was find more pain. But there was a larger reality. And that larger reality is God's kingdom. And part of God's kingdom are the ways that God's kingdom shows up, including his joy, his grace, his love, his provision. So this is, this is how Paul thinks about this. He thinks about this larger reality, and, he, and, and this motivates him in the way now that he looks at his life. And that's what I want to look at. Look at this text again, and you can peek down through it as I go down through this. But the first thing I want you to notice is, is that when Paul is reporting this information, notice, first of all, he has a very specific orientation. His orientation, we've already mentioned, is that he understands that there's something bigger than him going on here. Now, the bigger for Paul is this. Jesus Christ has come, God in human flesh. He died for our sins. He resurrected. He ascended. And he poured out his spirit upon the church. That's Paul's concept of of his orientation. In other words, he's in prison, and he's in chains... But yet he now, his orientation is, is, oh, it's not just about this. This is about what God is doing through Christ on the planet. In other words, he doesn't just make, the, he, he doesn't just get oriented around what he's experiencing. He gets his mind oriented around what God is doing. There's a good distinction. If I get my mind too oriented around how this is just affecting me, do you think that's going to open up my experience to joy or do you think it's going to shut it down? Going to shut it down. Paul is showing us, how many of you have ever heard the phrase, gain some altitude, folks. Need some altitude on this. This is what Paul's doing. He's giving us some altitude. He's getting up high enough to be able to go, it's not just about me in chains in prison. It's about what God is doing in Christ through the church right now. That's key. Another thing that's key in his orientation is that he has a concept of discipleship. Now, this is the one. Every speaker always says something that everybody doesn't like. There's always at least one thing you say. So I'm going to get close to try to break down the... Paul believes that Christian discipleship involves belief and suffering. And if you don't believe what I just said, read the end of chapter 2, the last two verses. He says, it is not only God's will that you believe, but that you suffer. How many of you like suffering? Well, nobody likes suffering, but here's the deal. What if you could experience suffering with joy? Would that be of interest to you? Because there's suffering without joy, and there's suffering with joy. How many of you would like suffering with joy, if you're going to have to choose? It's kind of like, you know, in some of the workshops we do, is we, we tell people, we said, listen, you know, we believe that people will make the best of two choices. Like, you know, this is grief, this is more grief, which, which what's people going to take? Grief. So if suffering is offered to you without joy and suffering with joy, which are you going to go for? 
Okay, so Paul's perspective is, is that part of discipleship involves suffering, but that suffering was not intended to be experienced without joy. It's intended to be experienced with joy. Now, that's very important because as Paul is getting, as he's reporting this, he's suffering, isn't he? But what's he experiencing? Yeah, I mean, my Bible says this at the end of it. He said, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. And then he says, I will rejoice. He's experiencing joy. He's always going to experience more joy, and he's in chains. Does this fascinate anybody? Like, how does that happen? Because I guarantee you, in this room right now, suffering is taking place. And it may be very explicit and seeable, but it, and it also could be very hidden. How many of you know that's probably true? People suffer silently and unseen to us every day. So Paul gets an orientation on this and he says, listen, this, is, this whole thing fits into a larger context and, and my whole concept of this thing being a follower of Jesus does not exclude suffering. That's helpful because if your concept excludes suffering and you're suffering, then you can't have joy. So he goes, it includes this. It's not like he's trying to sign up for it. He's not, he's not a masochist, but he goes, it doesn't exclude suffering. Christian life doesn't exclude it. Discipleship doesn't exclude it. Following Jesus doesn't exclude it. But it always includes the experience of joy, even if you are suffering. Somebody say amen to that one. Okay, thank you. So with that orientation, what does he do? He is able, and this is key. With a new orientation, he's able to interpret what is happening to him differently. With this new orientation, he's able to look at the same chain. The chain is his circumstance. It's the obstacle. And he's now able to put a different interpretation on this. How many of you... I just lost you. Yes, I could tell. So... What I mean is there's what happens to you in life and then there's what you say about what happens to you in life. There's a chain and then there's what I say about the chain. Now, what is really producing the mischief in your life? Is it the chain or what I'm saying about the chain? What you're saying about the chain. But what do you complain about? The chain. What do you tell people when you get together... And you talk, you talk about the chain. You don't generally talk about the problem isn't the chain. The problem is what I am telling myself about what the chain means. I'm in prison. I can't do anything. I'm locked up. I was supposed to be about God's will, proclaiming the gospel in Rome. What's happening? See, that sounds like the interpretation when you've lost your altitude. It's all about you. Your experience of life doesn't include any type of suffering. And so now we're, we're stopped dead cold. Is that what Paul reports? No! He says, oh, I'm chained. Fact. <laughs> Simple fact. Chained. Got an obstacle going on here. Oh, and because he's got some altitude, 
I'm chained to a non-believing guard. This is a great opportunity. <laughs> great opportunity. Oh, by the way, if you study what they did, they rotated those guards about every three hours. And then those guards went and talked and, you know, probably had a meal. And what did he say to you during your time of being chained to Paul? And he said, the whole palace guard is aware the gospel's going throughout all the praetorium. Now, do you think that that would have happened if he would have been, I'm chained. And it means that nothing can happen. Do you think that would have shut down the possibilities of what could have been occurring? Interpretations are very powerful. And they, the option for your interpretation will always come from your orientation. If you have no altitude on it, there's not a larger reality like the kingdom of God and what he's doing right through you this day in Visalia, regardless of what's, you know, regardless of what chains are. He this gives you the ability to actually look at these things and not just make up fanciful stories about them, but actually really explore if this chain, if this obstacle that I'm experiencing in my life right now was really perfect for something, if it was really perfect for advancing the cause of Christ, if this was perfect for advancing what God is up to in Christ through me at this time in this place, what would it be perfect for? I'm going to tell you something, folks. We have been living this stuff. This isn't some sort of fanciful preaching for Radiant on this morning. I mean, Valerie and I have had to go back to the drawing board and go, where is our stinking thinking showing up? Where are we being victims to our circumstances? Where are we focusing so much on what's holding us back, whether it's health or finances or people? You know, what? Blah, whatever. And we go, what if the problem isn't the problem? What if the problem is, is that we've lost our altitude, we've shrunk down the, the options for what, you know, what these could be perfect for, we're using interpretations that aren't opening up an experience of joy for us or for anybody else, and we need to do some quick shifting here. And this quick shifting, I just spit on the mic, this quick shifting is, is caught up in the word choice. Everybody say it with me. Choice. Henry Nouwen made it very clear in some of his writings. He says, nothing in the spiritual life occurs automatically. Nothing. Nothing in the spiritual life occurs automatically. Very difficult for us in our culture and in the church life to hear. Because we are always, all of us are always wanting it just to happen. How many of you notice that? Jesus' word, when he introduces the kingdom, shows us that the linchpin shift point is this word repent, which is just another word for choose. That's all it is. Repentance is not just a reality about turning from sin. Repentance is just the fact of choosing life versus choosing death. Repentance is the activity of choosing an interpretation that opens my experience up to the joy of the kingdom versus choosing an interpretation that shuts it down. How many of you think that's probably true? We choose. Now one says this regarding choice. Listen, joy is what makes life worth living, but many to many, joy seems hard to find. They complain that their lives are sorrowful and depressing. 
What then brings the joy we so much desire? Are some people just lucky while others somehow have run out of luck? Strange as it may sound, we can choose joy. Two people can be part of the same event, but one may choose to live it quite differently than the other. One may choose to trust that what happened, painful as it may be, holds a promise. The other choose despair and they're destroyed by it. Now one says that in our life, we always have the opportunity to choose in the moment either a joy that's expansive or to choose to live this moment as a reason for resentment. I have a question to ask. How many of you are living with low-grade levels or high-grade levels of resentment about how life has occurred or what is occurring in life? I get it. I'm right there with you. And these are some of the things that we've had to look at, or I should say have gotten to look at. And I've got to tell you something. Joy is not something we create. Joy, I'm, I'm asserting that there is a reality here that we do not see where joy is constantly 24-7 available. The joy that Jesus spoke of when he said, these, I, says, I've spoken these things so that your joy may be full. How many of you think there's probably 24-7 availability to joy? And also make sure that you understand that I'm not saying 24-7, oh, you know, happy, happy, happy look. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the joy that we spoke about earlier. That, that, that though it may appear as happy, is not, it's not contained in the idea of happiness. So if it's 24-7 available, then it's not anything that I can create. But in shifting, in choosing, making certain choices of life, I can have an expanded experience of that joy in my life or not. That's what this workshop's about. It's about developing practices that actually just expand our experience of the joy that's there. In other words, the workshop's about getting out of our own way and allowing our choices to open up an experience of joy for ourselves and for others. That's what it's about. So, now, with a new interpretation, if this was perfect for something, guess what Paul does? It's hilarious. He goes, oh, and by the way, you know, some people are preaching the gospel of, out of strife and envy. But you know what? Christ is being preached. <laughs> Does anybody hear the neutrality of his reporting that? And he goes, oh, and by the way, you know, some are preaching them, Christ out of strife and envy, and they're really intending to add to my own suffering. How many of you would go hooray over that one? He goes, but you know what? In all things, Christ is being preached. Where is his focus? Christ being preached. When your focus is on you, guess what? Your experience of joy is going to shrink down. See, if I was reporting that, I would go, hey, those yokos over there, they're preaching Christ out of wrong motivation, and while they're doing it, they're trying to make my life more miserable. That sucks. That would be my report. Because, because who's it all about? When it's all about me, and I'm stuck in this place, there is no joy. And how much of an experience of joy do you think I'm going to be generating for you out of that? Nana. None. Now, what if, what if it's not what's happening to you, it's not what those yokos are saying, 
or not saying. It's not about anybody being treated badly by people. Don't raise your hand because they may be in the room, you know. But we get treated badly by people every day. What if, even though that was true, it didn't matter to the degree that we'd like to believe? What if there was another interpretation that would open up an experience of joy? But you just can't see it because your altitude's too low. But what if you got your eyes off yourself? I got my eyes off myself. We climbed up higher and we said, there is a God in heaven who is doing something in the world today. And it includes me. And he is mindful of the things that touch my life. It's not as though the father doesn't care. But he doesn't care about them the same way that I do. Where it's all about me. And what if I started asking questions about what interpretation could I put to this chain that would create an openness to advance what God was doing in the moment in my life and in the people's lives around me. And then what would be my experience of life as life continues to happen? How many of you notice that occurs? Like even after you make good choices, life still continues to happen? But guess what? In the same way that Paul is able to look at this and kind of go, yeah, this is happening. Yeah, that's happening. But you know what? God is still God and God is still advancing. And I'm happy about that. <laughs> Isn't this awesome? So, so when he gets to the end, he says, I mean, it's like amazing. He's like going, oh, these chains? Yeah, they look like an obstacle, but actually, you know what they are? They're just a big, hairy occasion for me to rejoice. <laughs> and you would swear he's like, yeah, I mean, if it wasn't Paul, right? If it wasn't Paul, one of the greatest thinkers of the Christian movement ever. If it wasn't Paul, you'd be able to kind of be, dismiss it. But he's actually going, no, really? In this life, you can never be chained down from joy. <laughs> like ever. The only reason you're going to get chained down and not experience joy is simply because of the choices we make around what happens in life. Now, I got to tell you, I think when I thought of Radiant, I had, I so was blessed walking up to Radiant this morning and seeing the sign up there. I hadn't seen the church building and saw it and the sun, sun was coming up behind it and I was thinking about what I was going to talk with you about. I, honestly, I think that Living into this thing that we're talking about this morning could add such vibrancy to what is already present here. It was like if the light is on and you think of a dimmer and the lights are on, but then you don't realize, oh my gosh, there was another quarter turn, right? You thought it was on full and it was like fantastic, but there was still another quarter turn. You go, whoa, it makes me wonder about this being lived into. And, you know, if you could, I will tell you at the workshop, we're actually going to have you look. I'm not going to tell you what the exercise is, but we're actually going to have you look at specific real-time chains and obstacles in your life. And we're going to walk you through a reframing process of that. 
And I'm convinced, I'm convinced that as you go out of that and begin to live out of that different interpretation, your experience of joy will be like that. The candle, you know, the candlelight level is going to just go. And what's going to happen is you're going to create a greater experience of joy for this community. I am convinced of that. And I can tell you, you take a group of people where the joy factor increases and the light rises in that respect, I'll tell you, verbal or nonverbal, it, it, I have watched it. It will, it will dispel darkness in a way that, that so, so many other efforts can't. So, thank you. I'd like to pray with you. Pray about this just for a moment. Well, Father, I just want to thank you that joy is not this thing you buy at the dollar store and call it happiness, and it's just like, but, but that it has such reality and such value and that it's always available. That in and of itself, Father, that the joy that we've spoken of this morning is available. It's just like the biggest draw and motivator to shift out of my self-focus and, and to begin to think about you, Jesus, and what you're doing and what you're up to and the big picture. And Lord, I just pray even now that uh, you would come in, Holy Spirit, and begin to disturb the stinking thinking, uh, that you would just begin to even now begin to provide fresh notions of new interpretations that are not just equally true, but more true. More true because they're rooted in what you're up to. Uh, that you would just begin doing that and people would begin to feel that like, oh my gosh, I've been like walking around half asleep. There's so much more available. And I pray, Father, that uh, as we go forward, uh, trusting you and walking with you in this, I just pray that Visalia would see its light coming in new ways. Dispersed throughout all the varied places that these folks represent. Pray your blessing and speak your peace and your goodwill upon Radiant. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We want to be a resource for you as you walk with Jesus. So please connect with us at radiantbicelia.com. Until next time. There is a heavenly city that I'm compelled to find. Oh, I love the flowers and trees and the smell of the grinding sea and all the beautiful things here in life. Bye.